John chapter 8 at verse 1. That's where you need to be. And I'll actually begin reading at John 7 and verse 53, that last verse of chapter 7. It says there, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Then they said, testing him, or this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would bless the reading and preaching of your holy word. Change our hearts and change our lives for your own glory and our sakes, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so before we begin this morning, I need really to say a few words about the text before us. This passage, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And the reason is because in your Bible, you might have a note there. You may have those verses in brackets indicating that it's not found in, quote, the older manuscripts and that sort of thing. It is what we call a textual variant. You know, you have to know that the Greek New Testament is um, pieced together from various Greek manuscripts over time from different places and from different times. They're from different families. And uh, there are those who say that um, this really is not authentic, that its authenticity is contested. And they give reasons and they say things like, well, in the early Greek churches, it was unknown. However, in the early Latin church, it was known. They will say that the earliest manuscripts do not contain uh, verses um, 1 through 11, including chapter 7 and verse 53. They'll also say it doesn't fit the context, that it doesn't reflect John's way of writing and so forth. But... There was a guy named Papias, and he was a direct disciple of the Apostle John, and he alludes to what happened here between the Pharisees, the scribes, Jesus, and this woman. And in addition to that, Augustine, who lived in the 5th century, the late 400s, early, um, rather the early 
three hundreds. I'll get it right in a second. Later three hundreds, early four hundreds. Augustine, the church father, he says that this is part of Holy Scripture. And then there was Jerome as well who said the same thing. And so that's just to say that there are those who affirm the authenticity of this text. And so I stand with those men. I stand with men like John Calvin and the reformers who came after him, Matthew Henry, and men such as more recently, William Hendrickson. So I'm going to assume the authenticity of this text. And by the way, this text is found in over 900 Greek new manuscripts, as far as we know. And so the title of the sermon this morning is The Righteous Condemned, The Unrighteous Justified. That's what happens here. When I say righteous, you can put air quotes around that. The self-righteous Pharisees, they're condemned by our Lord Jesus. And yet this woman who is unrighteous, caught in the very act of adultery, she is not condemned by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is to say she is justified. Biblically speaking, the terms justify and condemn are opposites. You can go back and look in Deuteronomy 25, chapter 25, verse 1, where you see that. The, uh, the Lord there through Moses lays this down and talks about the trial in the court of law. If someone is wicked and they're found guilty of a crime, they are condemned. If someone is righteous and they're found innocent of a crime, then they are justified. They're declared not guilty. And yet... These who are self-righteous in our text, they are condemned by Jesus. And this woman caught in adultery, she is justified by our Lord Jesus. She is found not guilty. He says, I do not condemn you. So as you think about that, maybe you're sensing a tension. I mean, after all, does God tell a fib here? Does Christ uh, tell a fib when it comes to the gospel itself? This is what happens. God takes a sinner who is guilty of breaking his law. And through the person and work of the Lord Jesus, when that is applied to them, when that person repents and puts his faith in Jesus, God says not guilty. That person is justified. And so, does God tell a fib? Does he simply put a new name tag on such a person, one who is a Christian? And cover up the name tag sinner with saint. That's the dilemma. And to put it more plainly and directly to our text, does Jesus here smooth over, gloss over, or make light of sin? Is that what he's doing here? Does he merely let this woman go? Well, I hope we'll answer that as we move through the text this morning. Again, this is about the righteous who are condemned because they're self-righteous. And the sinner who is justified, this woman. And so let's see then how it happened. First of all, as we look at the beginning of our text, really the end of chapter 7, verse 53 of chapter 7, it says, And everyone went to his own house. Remember the scene? This is in the middle of the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus has been teaching He's answered these men who are seeking to kill him, the religious leaders. Then he gives that great invitation uh, in chapter 7. And then after all of that kind of died down a little bit, it says in verse 53, they all went to their own house except for Jesus. 
He went to the Mount of Olives. Why? We aren't told. Perhaps it was for prayer, which he would spend the night in prayer frequently, especially before some great uh, ministry event of his. Uh, Maybe it was because he had nowhere to lay his head, as we were told as well earlier in the Gospels. Or was it out of caution because he had a price on his head? It could have been for all of these reasons. We aren't told, but that's what he did. And so in verse 2, it says we see him, we find him there early in the morning in the temple. The people are coming to him, and what's he doing? He's teaching, he's preaching the word of God. That's in verse 2. And just pause for a moment and notice Jesus' love for the stated meetings and worship services of the church. How Jesus was always found in his father's house on the Lord's Day and at the festivals and whenever the elders called for such services. That's our Lord's example. We see that here. But we also see his population growing. They're coming to him again. It says in verse 2, the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. So he sat down, as was the tradition of the rabbis those days. And Jesus, we know, taught with authority, not like the scribes. He taught not quoting other men, but giving divine revelation from God himself, for he is God in the flesh. And so in verses three through six, we see that Jesus is put in the dock once again. He's put on trial on the bench at verse three. It says, then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery in the very act. And so they bring this woman. Perhaps she had linens wrapped around her and they put her in the midst of the crowd. And there's Jesus There are the scribes, the Pharisees, and this woman. And then around them, there are these crowds. And so the question is raised in verse 4. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. In the Greek, it goes something like this. But what do you yourself say? So what do you yourself, what do you say, Jesus? That's the question here. And so John, he notes in verse six there, it says this, they said, testing him, tempting him that they may have something of which to accuse him. They were setting a trap for Jesus. Why? So that they might accuse him. It goes something like this. They wanted Jesus to give an answer that was contrary to the law of Moses. And if they could get him to give an answer that was contrary to the law of Moses, then they could formally charge him with blasphemy, false teaching, and the like. And as such, they could condemn him by the hands of the Sanhedrin, label him a transgressor of the law, and destroy his influence with the people. And if they could get him to commit blasphemy, then they could put him to death. They are trying to find a way to kill him. John has told us that 
a number of times already in this gospel. Remember in those days that the Romans allowed the Jews to have their own courts and then they could go to the Roman court and then if found guilty, the Jews could put such a person to death. That's what's going to happen at the mistrial of all ages, the mistrial of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what they're trying to do. Now, as you think about that and you see what they're doing, John tells us they're testing Jesus. First of all, where's the man in this scenario? Where is the one who was committing adultery with this woman? He's nowhere to be found. And are they really concerned about this woman? Are they really concerned about her sin? And as God says in the Old Testament, putting the evil away from them. She is merely a pawn in their plot. That's what's going on. So we see their coldness here, their harshness, their indifference to sin, really. And what is at stake for this woman? I've already alluded to it. She committed adultery, the physical act of adultery. Leviticus 20 and verse 10, it says this. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It was a capital crime under God's Old Testament law. Why? Because this is a foundational, um, a foundational part of society. This is one of those ordinances that is found at the very beginning of creation. And in Genesis 2, when God brings the man and woman together, he says, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder, let no man separate or destroy this holy union between one man and one woman. When a person commits adultery, it divides, it shatters the home typically, and ultimately society where this is found rampant. And also, as we know later in the scriptures, that... Marriage itself reflects the relationship between Christ and his church, the husband, the head of the church and his bride. And so when adultery is committed, it destroys that analogy and witness and testimony on the earth. And so we ought to be reminded that some sins are more heinous than others. I mean, a little white lie is a sin against God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And so even a little white lie will send a person to hell. It's sin against God who is eternally holy and just. And yet some sins require immediate death, at least under the Old Testament economy. And we see that here with this woman. Her life is at stake. Her eternal condemnation at well, as well. And so verses six and seven, then we see Jesus's defense. We see his answer. And actually he puts them on trial. He reverses, he turns the table onto them. And so we're told in verse six, they were testing him. They said this, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers. And my translation says, as though he did not here. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he stoop down and write on the ground? What was he writing? 
We don't know. There have been many offerings. There's much written about this passage in general, much written about what Jesus wrote on the ground. I mean, maybe he was writing their names on the ground. Maybe he was writing the commandments on the ground or a warning to them, or maybe he was just doodling. Some would say he's trying to buy some time here. He doesn't know exactly what to say. We don't know. I don't think it was the latter. But what he does is bring suspense to the conversation. He's making them think as to what he is saying. And I think in his humanity, remember Jesus is God and man brought together in one person, those two natures, human and divine. And in his human nature, I think he is studying how to answer, like the proverb says in 15 and 28 of Proverbs, the heart of the wise studies how to answer. After all, her life is at stake here. And so note what he says in verse seven. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. What does that mean? Why did Jesus say that? Well, again, the stone refers to the death penalty. Again, Leviticus 20 and verse 10. And when the death penalty was executed back in Israel, it was by stones, throwing and casting stones upon a person. This was God's order back then. But there are two things we need to know about the death penalty. Number one, the accusers had to throw the first stone. In Deuteronomy 17 at verse 6, it says, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. You see, God's order back then was to prevent false accusations. God knew men are sinful. Men lie. Men bear false witness. So you can't bring this accusation with just one witness. There has to be two or three. And the ones who make the accusation, if found guilty, the one accused is to receive the first stone from his or her accuser. Second, the witnesses who are to bring such an accusation of a crime that is worthy to death must be innocent of that same crime. And so if these men were guilty of adultery and had committed that, they could not bring an accusation of adultery against another in Israel. It's kind of like in the Salem witch trials years ago, hundreds years ago, hundreds of years ago, um, they allowed the accused to testify against themselves. That's forbidden by God's law. Well, that's what Jesus is getting at here. Let him who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. But there is a secondary application, isn't there? Uh, this speaks to the hypocrite in all of us. You know, Romans, in Romans chapter 2, at this part, he's speaking to the Jewish people who tended to be self-righteous, but that's in all of us. And it says in Romans 2, beginning of verse 22, You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples and so forth? 
And so this principle teaches us that if we are going to accuse others, we should be free of that accusation as well. doesn't mean we never bring accusations. You know, parents, maybe you tell your children, get upstairs and clean your room. That room is a mess in your, your child's life. But mom or dad, look at that mess over there that you made. Well, then you can pull the authority card. I'm your parent. You have that right. But then you should say, you're right, son. You're right, daughter. Let me go clean up my mess as well. So we can be hypocrites. And this is a good rule to remember. But you see what Jesus is doing here. He's talking about the Mosaic Old Testament law. The the, um, civil law. And so we have their condemnation. Verses 8 and 9. It says, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. In my mind, he's, he's, he's drawing and writing in the sand and they are walking out one by one, a single file line, the eldest to the youngest. Now, why is that? Perhaps it's because the eldest there have the most wisdom. They understand. They see what Jesus is doing. And perhaps because they are convicted the most. They know the sins of their youth. And then the younger ones follow their elders behind them. Then we are told that the the woman in verse 9 was left standing in the midst. It was Jesus and the woman. Here they are in the middle of that great crowd, no doubt. But in the inner circle, as it were, it's Jesus and this woman left. And so in verses 10 and 11, before I go on, just think we ought to see here their point again. They were convicted in their conscience. Whether they had committed adultery in their hearts, as Jesus had already taught in Matthew 5, you know, that's where adultery begins in our hearts inside of us. That's where murder begins by anger inside of us. Whether it's that or actual, literal, physical adultery, which was probably the case as he labels the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and elsewhere, unclean and so forth. Full of uncleanness. They go out convicted of their sins. Take note of that as well. And so we have their condemnation, but then there's her justification. At verse 10, it says, When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Women, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? They are unable to bring the accusation because they are guilty. If they are found guilty, they're going to be in a lot of trouble. So they leave. And so she says in verse 11, no one, Lord. So what does Jesus say to her? Of course, he knows what's going on. He knew that they were gone. He knew that no one was around. Well, 
Verse 11, and Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus dismisses this woman, I believe, who is converted to him. She becomes a Christ disciple, a follower of Jesus, a true Christian, calling him Lord. And Jesus here doesn't address this whole idea of her deserved sentence. Jesus here does not meddle in the affairs of the state. No, that's because his calling here is different. He came to save sinners. He was not disregarding the legitimate civil magistrate. I mean, Paul talks about that in Romans 13. That every authority that exists, meaning the civil authorities, is ordained of God. And Paul says that by the authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle of Christ. But he's offering, Jesus is offering this woman forgiveness. But it must be attended with what? Repentance. Go and sin no more. Earlier, the previous day, Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him living water. If you drink of that water, you will never thirst again. And this woman obviously was thirsting for something and someone. Jesus comes and she finds that it is Jesus for whom she has been thirsting all along. And she drinks from the fountain of Christ. So as we consider that, there are five points of application that I want to note this morning. So quickly, let me give those to you. First of all, we should bear in mind here uh, the biblical separation of church and state. This is indirect. This is implied, I think. People often point to Jesus here when it comes to the state and the church and so forth. Um, But we ought to recognize that there is in Scripture a biblical separation of church and state. state. Um, The state does not possess the keys of the kingdom of Christ. They may not administer church discipline. They may not administer the word of God or the sacraments. Likewise, the church of Jesus Christ has not been given the sword of God. That's been given to the state. And we see that through Jesus' behavior here. No, Jesus, in the words of John 3, 17, came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And yet Jesus will come a second time as the judge to judge the sins of all men. And so that makes what I'm about to say crucial. There's a second point then of application. We see here in verse 9, We witness the effects of sinful human pride. They're convicted. They're convicted verbally by Jesus. And I think here the text tells us convicted by their conscience. And what do they do? They don't flee to Christ. They walk away from him. Still in their sins. Left, if they never change, if they never come to him, left to die in their sins. And so we see the nature of self-righteousness 
It leads to hypocrisy and it leads to a refusal to bow to Jesus Christ as Savior from one's sins. And as we see from their actions here, I think Matthew Henry was right when he said, Our care should be more to save our souls than to save our credit, our reputation. Now, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, he says, you know, take the plank out of your own eye, the two by four, take it out so that you can see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. And he teaches us not to be hypocrites there. And he also teaches us that our evaluation of the sins of others is often more severe. We can be hypocritical and we can be hypercritical. We can be Pharisees. And we see that in action here. There's a third warning and a third application, which comes in the form of a warning. And it comes in the words of Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23. It says there, be sure your sins will find you out. Moses says that. This woman had a secret sin that occurred behind closed doors. That she or the man with whom she was with did not want others to know about. But God sees our sins. He knows what happens in the dark, in the secret. Is this not true of our secret sins? That we commit in private. Even if we hate them. God sees them. And there's coming a time. Romans 2.16 says a day at which time God will judge men's secrets. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for the deeds done in the body. We will stand before the tribunal of heaven. So what is one to do? Is that it? Is it judgment, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath? Well, we have here not only law, we have gospel as well, don't we? That's in the form of the fourth application. It can be. It can be an act of mercy to have one's sins exposed and brought to light. In the Old Testament, there's David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba in secret, as much as possible for a king to do. He tried to cover it. And then Nathan the prophet comes. And he gives the parable and Dave, David in his self-righteousness says, well, that man's wicked. He needs to be put to death. Nathan says, you're the man. So David's secret sin was exposed by God and his prophet. Well, here this woman's secret sin too is exposed. And were it not for this, she would go on and on probably from one lover to another. Storing up wrath, Romans 2, for herself, for the day of wrath. Oh, but in God's providence, even by wicked men, her sin is exposed. It's brought before Jesus. What laundry, what dirty laundry she does have is right there before our Lord. What does Jesus say? Woman, where are those accusers? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I condemn you, which is to say, I forgive you. 
You know, earlier I asked the question, how is it that Jesus could forgive this woman? Does Jesus gloss over her sin? Does he simply um, forgive her sin without price, without cost? Is God not just after all? You know, that's one of the tensions in the gospel. On the one hand, her accusers had to go. They were not allowed to testify because of their sin. But on the other sin, the text tells us she was caught in the very act. And Jesus' words in verse 11 assume that she is guilty. Jesus could and Jesus did justify her. He forgave her and declared her not guilty. Why? Because he himself would pay the penalty for her sins. Where? At the cross. His cross. So as Isaiah 53 promised and prophesied about Jesus to come in verse 11, Isaiah 53, it says, He, Jesus, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant Jesus shall justify many. How? For he shall bear their iniquities. Psalm 85 and verse 10 says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Where did God's justice, where did God's mercy come together so that the sins of his people could be paid in full? It was at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine you stand before the judge and you've murdered someone. You have blood on your hands and the judge says... You're found guilty. Now for the sentence, the electric chair. I don't know if it still is intact. I don't think so. It used to be in this state. And you have to go to the electric chair and there's someone over there to your right. He's committed no crime. And he says, judge, excuse me. I am willing to pay for the crime of this person. I am willing to go to the electric chair. And he dies so that you might live. Moreover, he says, judge, give him my clean record. Let him go scot-free, but give him my record. I've never committed a crime. That's what happens in the gospel. We get Jesus's perfect life, his perfect righteousness, but also our bad record is erased because he has paid the price for our sins. And so in Romans 3, 26, Paul says, God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how God is the same, just and mercy, full of mercy. And so in other words, God who must punish sin has placed our sins, beloved, on Jesus who has received the punishment and paid the penalty for our sins in full. He took the penalty of eternal death for your adultery, for your lust, for your looking at pornography, for your idolatry, for your blasphemy, for your stealing, for your lying, for your breaking of the Sabbath, for your coveting of all things and whatever sins you've committed. What is the result? Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Christian, where is your accuser? Where are those who would accuse you? 
Oh, maybe the law comes at times. Maybe Satan brings up a sin that you've committed. But Jesus says, I do not condemn you. I have forgiven you in full. Someone will ask, well, just Jesus make light of sin? No. Look at verse 11. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. That's justification. That's forgiveness. That's God's grace. Then he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What is that? That's repentance. Turn from your sins. Come unto me, Jesus says. Repent and believe the gospel of Christ. You know, Jesus, we were told, came to save us from our sins. Matthew one twenty one. Think about that. He came to save us from our sins, from sin's power, its dominion over us, from sin's penalty, death, eternal death and hell forever. But also one day, its very presence. And so for now, we fight against it. We wrestle against it. We repent daily, particularly of our individual sins. You know, the Apostle Paul, he speaks to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They came from a culture and society steeped in the grossest of sexual sins. And he says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he lists all of the catalog of sexual sins. You know, adultery, homosexuality, some say pedophilia, effeminacy, all these things. He mentions thievery, idolatry, drunkenness, sinners of every kind. And then he says this to them in verse 11. And such were some of you. Oh, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Christian, this is the message for all sinners, for you and me, for those who have yet to turn to Jesus. They must repent of their sins, even homosexuals, whatever brand and kind it is. uh, They are to repent of that sin as well and not keep that identity. Their identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're to pursue holiness just as are we, whatever our sins and besetting sins might be. Brothers and sisters, do you have a secret besetting sin here this morning? Is it gnawing at your conscience? Well, in 1 John, the same John who gave us this gospel, in chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but for the whole world. You see, we do sin. But we have an advocate with the Father at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case, reminding the Father that he has paid our sin, paid for our sins in full. 
That's the propitiation of our sins. And so Jesus, through his work, beloved, has dismissed the charges against us. So this 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, just as he has done even so with this adulterous woman. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of the gospel of Christ, for the joy that it brings to us, for its beauty. For our Savior says, no man has had any such love as this, as he would lay down his life for his brethren. Lord, may this grip our hearts and lead us to repentance daily out of a love for you, seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.